It's a joy to spend this time with you together today, church. If you grab your Bibles with me and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, it's my privilege to preach the Lord's Word this morning. The next portion that he's ordained for us here in chapter 2, today looking at verses 25 through 35, a sermon that I've titled The Song of Simeon. It's a testimony of Simeon, and then next week we'll look at a testimony of Anna, which follows. And before we jump into Simeon and Anna's testimonies in these final two Sundays of Advent, look to the unique role that they play in Jesus' arrival in his Advent. I want to point out why Luke's sharing of their stories is helpful to us beyond the specifics of their story. And it is because, church, they are witnesses. These are real people who were there in the beginning. Markers of Jesus' life and appointed by God to identify the Messiah as Jesus Christ. They're among the people that Mary and Joseph and Jesus encounter in their important visit to the temple whereby they came to honor God and obey commands as he put upon them. Recall with me briefly the things that we studied last week that set up today. Luke chapter 2, 21 through 24. At the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. As we look, church, to the next part of Luke's gospel account, we encounter two witnesses of the newborn babe, Jesus. Consider with me why God has ordained that witnesses are an important part of validating testimony. God set the standard in the old covenant that continues today, and it is this. The basic legal and principle and practice requires that a person's testimony be confirmed or corroborated by many witnesses. We see this take place in places like Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he or she has committed. Only in the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Jesus will later prescribe the general equity of this practice in the famous prescriptions of Matthew 18. In verse 15 and 16, we read, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul, after him, will remind us of the importance of this practice in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, 2 Corinthians 13, 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then later in 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So why is this an important role that both now Simeon and Anna are going to play in this gospel testimony. And it's because the gospel's testimony is that the promised Messiah is this baby, Jesus of Nazareth, begotten of God, born of the Virgin in Bethlehem from the family of David, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this baby is God's promised Redeemer who has come to save his people from their sins. Church, this is a massive testimony. Therefore, this unprecedented news would need verification. And so God in his perfection has ordained that the life of Jesus would be filled with witnesses to validate the gospel's true authenticity. What we have seen so far is only a small remnant of people who have bore witness to these things so far in Luke's gospel. They are Zechariah, Elizabeth, 
Mary, Joseph, a few shepherds, and now these select witnesses in Simeon and Anna. See with me, church, that God's standard is being met in all these that serve as a plurality of witnesses that validate that these early happenings of Jesus' life are indeed the case. It is good news that this unprecedented happening of Jesus' entire life would also consistently be solidified by witnesses. It is the framework of the Gospels we read. This is good news to us today because it's upon this precedent that we can so confidently trust that these things did indeed happen as Scripture says they did. Praise God for his validating of these hallmark events in Jesus' life with so many witnesses. We are surely to be blessed by what each bring to the advent of God the Son who took on flesh that first Christmas. With that, let's look to the testimony of Simeon this morning and his interaction with Jesus' family in this most special visit to Jerusalem. We pick up in verse 25, Luke 2, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon is known in the scriptures for this. And this is it. He's not known elsewhere for any part of his testimony. What we gather is that this is a simple man who resides in Jerusalem. We do not know his age. We do not know his vocation. We do not want to guess. What we do know is this. We know his spiritual condition because it's declared he is described as righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is what the Lord has ordained to testify of him. Luke aims to highlight Simeon's piety. This means Simeon took seriously the commands of God and was faithful to honor his Lord by obeying them in the days the Lord had given him. In these descriptions, Luke is referring to a, a steadfastness of faith and evidence of sanctification in Simeon's life, showing maturity in faith and persistence to walk uprightly in the Lord. That's what we're given of this man. And to be described as one who truly is known for his righteousness, church is not to be overlooked or undervalued. If you remember, this is how Luke describes Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke 1, 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Oh, how each of us who belong to Christ should long for these things to be true of us. Because we are redeemed by God's grace, set free from the shackles of our sin, we therefore long to fight our flesh and walk in the Spirit. We do this not because it points others to us, we do it because it points others to God and his amazing grace and his mighty work to redeem and sanctify his people unto holy living. What a wonderful thing we get to be part of, church, as we, as we walk in Christ's grace and power to live our days for the glory of our good God. May our true heart conviction be one of gratitude to be counted among those whom God has redeemed by Christ and is sanctifying by the Holy Spirit. Notice that Luke adds this important clarity here in verse 25, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Luke 2, 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is a helpful clarity as it points us to the power and the motivation of Simeon's righteousness and faithful testimony. While there are many we might know in this life who are natural rule followers, right? You know the type. Maybe the firstborn child of your family, they typically have a tendency to follow the rules as mom and dad are typically stricter on them. Or people who are shaped by parents who are very disciplined. Or people who grew up in certain cultures. But see with me that that is not what is highlighted here. Right? Natural tendencies to follow the rules. 
No, it's a testimony of an actual doing what is righteous before the Lord, a genuine commitment to be faithful, right? But this is something that Scripture says all men do not do on our own. Why? Because in our flesh, apart from regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we do not do what is righteous. Even the good things we do, Scripture says, is not unto the glory of the Lord. This means that all, all are desperate for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our dead heart and motivate us unto righteous living and growing in Christ-likeness. Piety apart from the Holy Spirit empowerment is exhausting. It's hard. It's not lasting, right? Any, any of us can suck it up and work hard for a stretch of life. Uh, or maybe in certain turns of the road, we might do that better than others. But lasting, growing, genuine obedience and righteousness is only the fruit of the Spirit at work in us. At work in us who are saved by Jesus. Praise God for the Spirit and His mighty work in us. This is His grace, His gift. A great gift it is for us who are redeemed. That we can often, church, take for granted. We can often lose sight of it. May we remain truly grateful for all the ways that the Holy Spirit is at work in the redeemed. Even on days when we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves. Scripture speaks to this well in Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray or for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Beloved disciples, family, the key to the righteous and obedient life that God calls us to is not hard work, better disciplines, relentless pursuits. Sure, spiritual disciplines are given by God and are surely helpful and good, but they are nothing without the Spirit. We all need the power of the Spirit to work in and through us if we are going to grow in spiritual maturity or do anything righteous unto the glory of God. This is why Christian growth and sanctification is the result of the Holy Spirit in and through us. This is why our focus, church, needs to not be in growing fruit ourselves, but pressing into Christ, resting in Christ, abiding in Christ, being satisfied in Christ, who is enough, who is life, who is the vine. We are nothing without Jesus. We make no progress apart from him, we only have life and hope because of him. See with me, Simeon, a man who has no resume of life accomplishments to boast of, but his testimony is one of righteousness and being devout. This is the fruit of the Spirit at work in him. Likewise, our God-honoring gospel Testimony is brightest when nothing but Christ is empowering and sustaining us. Right? Just like Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. May we all be mindful of a tendency to work to perform, to do better of our own. And be reminded in the sweetness of the simplicity of this to return to our first love, that childlike faith that fully and truly rest in Jesus, by whom we're forgiven, by whom we're made a child of God, secure by his power forevermore. Christian, are you looking to yourself? Are you looking to your own resolve and performance to make headway in the Christian faith? Or are you resting in Jesus, abiding in him, 
It is only the branch who is fixed in Christ the vine who will bear much fruit. Jesus himself said so most clearly in John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Praise God for his work in Simeon for a sanctification and obedience which is powered by the Holy Spirit. Surely the Lord uses this to cause many to glorify God. May that be the same for us as well, church. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. One theologian makes this observation of Simeon's testimony. There surely was many pious people in the temple at that time. But piety alone is not enough to bring recognition of the nature of this child. The Holy Spirit at work in him is what is directing Simeon's actions and speech. Praise God. For God the Holy Spirit's work in each of us for whom he's graciously saved. May he do his mighty work in and through us in these days he's given. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and his, this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That phrase, waiting for the consolation of Israel, is important. First, what is the consolation of Israel? And even before that, what is a consolation? Consolation means to bring comfort, to be consoled, to be comforted. Simeon was hoping and waiting on the consolation, the comfort of Israel. This was something prophesied about many generations before. We see it in Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speaks tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Israel was God's chosen people of all different groups of people in creation in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant view of being comforted was to see an end to warfare and to have her iniquity and sin truly pardoned. The Old Covenant, though, was still only a temporary provision. One of its main and greatest purposes was to point to the ultimate comfort and salvation. The only one who could ultimately do this for God's elect was the Messiah, the promised Redeemer. This is where baby Jesus comes in and Simeon's unique role to identify him, the consolation of Israel. Look with me at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Not only is Simeon faithful and obedient and full of the Holy Spirit, he is given what we're told here, a very special assignment by the Holy Spirit, which was by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to identify the Lord's Christ. Again, so many witnesses to mark that the babe born in Bethlehem truly is the Messiah who comes to save his people from their sin. If you remember, the title Christ means Messiah, Royal Redeemer. God's Christ, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer, is Jesus. He is God the Son who has taken on flesh to come and save his people from their sins. Verse 26 says that, God's God, that God promised Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. 
Consider the magnitude of that promise after Simeon received it. This meant the Messiah was going to come in his lifetime. That was truly groundbreaking news in and of itself. When you consider that the Jews had been waiting for generations upon generations upon generations for the arrival of the Messiah. He's coming in my lifetime. I'm going to see him. Marvelous. It would be like God telling you and I today that Christ will return before you and I die. Think about what anticipation you would have if you knew you would experience his return in the flesh and this time in life before you die. Think about the ways that it would potentially even embolden your faith. This marvelous thing promised to Simeon. I love what this meant for him, especially on the day that the Holy Spirit made it clear to him that Christ is here. Right? Promise that he would come in his lifetime and now the Holy Spirit is making it clear to Simeon he's here. Now. Not later. Here. Not somewhere in the world. Here. Verse 27 in the first part of 28. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up, he took him up in his arms. He comes in the spirit, meaning he comes to the temple to identify the Messiah with the truth and the power and the clarity of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit makes this clear to him. Therefore, it is not wrong. It is truth. It is truth. It is truth. It is now. What an amazing moment for Simeon when the Holy Spirit makes it clear that the baby who is the Christ is this. Verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The first thing Simeon does is he brings the baby into his arms and bless God. Meaning he breaks out into authentic praise to God for the fact that God kept his promise that he would not die until he had seen God's promised Messiah. Simeon's song that he breaks into here is known as the Nuke Demetis, which is Latin for two, the two words that begin his praise, Lord now, or now Lord I will tell you, I've heard Simeon's song sung in Latin, and it is truly beautiful. Consider with me what he sings out to the Lord, church. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. First, he says, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, this is reference to the promise that God made that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. To depart in peace is a phrase used of old to describe one who dies in true peace. Death is our enemy. What a gift it is to have true peace. The brink of such a threshold. Meaning, this person's not undone. 
They're not full of remorse or regret. No, they're at peace, truly, and ready to die. We see this used in Genesis 15, 15, in a very important moment in history when God promised that Abram would also die in peace. Genesis 15, 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Simeon is so overjoyed by the presence of God's salvation that there's no greater thing he'll experience in this life. He's truly fulfilled and ready to die. Second, we see that the consolation, the comfort of God's salvation is not only for God's old covenant chosen people, the Israelites, those of Jewish descent, but also for the Gentiles. Church, this is where you and I come in. For we too are Gentiles, if not of Jewish descent. Look, Luke 2, 28-32, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Scripture teaches us that God's consolation shines the light of Jesus Christ not only on his chosen people of ethnic Israel but also on God's chosen who are Gentiles. This is truly astounding news especially for the Jews who thought the consolation of Israel was just for Israel. But here and elsewhere we see God's comfort is for his chosen who are Jews and Gentiles. Simeon's reference to a light for revelation to the Gentiles is also prophecy of the Lord given through Isaiah, speaking of the promised Messiah that we read about in Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Consider with me the good news of God's salvation being for Jew and Gentile in Paul's words in his letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, in peace to those who were near. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Church, praise God for the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. Without it, we would have no hope, no salvation, no true peace. Verse 14 here in this passage, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So many layers here. Basically, in summarizing quickness, Paul basically says that Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the means of true and lasting peace, as we're celebrating here today, on this second day of Advent, third day of Advent. I'm with us. That Christ's life, death, and resurrection has made reconciliation among men. That Christ's life, death, and resurrection has made reconciliation between God's elect and God. Church, this is the gospel. It's the good news. God's saving grace. What Jesus accomplished in his flesh for us. 
he, speaking of Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh, the incarnation, sacrificed himself in his flesh, in our place, the substitution. The victory of the cross meant the dividing wall between us and each other, between us and God, is torn down. Praise be to God. This means no more pilgrimages to this temple, no more blood sacrifices are needed, because Jesus fulfilled what was needed so that we can be reconciled to him. That's the emphasis in verse 15 by Paul. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Paul is saying the old covenant positive law is done away with. It's abolished. It's not necessary anymore. Because in Christ it's finished. On our behalf. And he puts into place a better covenant with God called the covenant of grace. The new covenant, a lasting covenant between God and his eternally chosen people. By which we celebrate with the Lord's Supper this morning. A people made of ethnic Jews and Gentiles. A people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Church, celebrate this good news with me this morning. The old covenant law said, do this and live. The new covenant says, it has been done for you by Christ so that you can eternally live. Ephesians 2.15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. When Paul says Christ creates in himself one new man in place of two, he's speaking of the long-standing separation that has been between Jew and Gentile. But now, for all those in Christ, there is no more division. There is one church, one body, one redeemed people that is made of ethnic Jews and Gentiles, all who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, are one in Christ. Paul very famously speaks of this in Galatians, Galatians 3, 28-29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen and amen. Before we circle back to Luke, in this kind of expounding view of what he means by a light for the Gentiles, consider with me what's said here in verse 17 for a moment. As it is the ministry of this day of Advent, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus came to preach peace to the Gentiles who were far off and the Jews who were near. But consider with me for a moment the kind of preacher that Jesus is. Jesus doesn't practice what he preaches. He is what he preaches. Perfect, complete, and holy in every way. And what does he preach? He preaches peace. Jesus said, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Jesus is not saying, I'm leaving you a world without war and chaos. He's saying, because of my life, I am shalom. Holistic peace that will impact every part of your life and relationships in your life. Jesus is saying, I am peace. Church, we must understand that on our own, left alone to our flesh, we'll never know true peace. David tells us why. Psalm 38, 18. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Man outside of Christ does not have the power to not stress, to not worry, because man is sinful. Because when I value the things that God created more than I value God, I'm destined to be let down by those things, which will cause great stress. Right? The source of mankind's anxiety, understand, is a lack of trusting Christ alone. Right? Only when we truly trust in Jesus, yield it to Jesus, and cling to Christ alone, do we experience real peace 
Remember, Christian, you can't have lasting and true peace because of your best efforts. You need Jesus. He himself is our peace. Peace among us is not a commodity that Jesus gives. It is a reality that we experience when we are one with him. To be peaceful with others, to experience peace in your life, we need Jesus himself. To know him, to trust him, to love him more than anything else. To have your grip or your hope on anything else more than him means you will stress. Because those things are not fireproof. They're not everlasting. When the storms rage, when the fires rage of this life, and they will, they'll be swept away. They'll burn up. But Christ walks on water in the midst of the storm. And all who trust in him join him there. Praise be to God. Back to Luke 2, 30-32. My eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon says. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Christ was surely the glory of Israel. Consider what that means. Think about that. For the glory of the people of Israel. What is the greatest glory of the people of Israel? Christ. All the covenants, all the promises to Abraham, Moses, David, all the, of God's amazing work among them are but a type and pale in comparison to the antitype. All these things pointed to Christ. Church, it is the highest honor of the Jewish nation. Jesus. Why? Out of Israel would come the Messiah to be the Savior of the world. All glory belongs to Christ. In, in response to Simeon's song and the Holy Spirit-powered revelation, we read in verse 33 that Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Joseph and Mary marveled at these words. They pondered. Similar to Mary's response to the shepherd's news to her in Luke 2.19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. If you remember the shepherd's joy, the Mary's joy, Simeon's joy, now Joseph and Mary are, are again marveling at the amazing proclamations about their son welling up with worship to the one true God. May we too marvel. May we wonder and well up with praise for all that God has done in and through Christ our Lord. The good news of God's amazing grace to send his only begotten son to die in our place so that we could be set free and reconciled to God forever. Truly amazing news that stirs our souls to high praise of our great and glorious God. Luke 2, 34 through 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. After blessing them, Simeon gives the first ominous insight that oppression is going to come against Jesus and judgment against Israel and heartache for Mary. I think sometimes at Christmas time when interacting with these texts, we, we like the sweet and positive stuff and we don't want to turn to the hard stuff but it is for this that Christ came and for this why we really praise him now and forever and so let us see it clearly church what he came to do 
in these clarities that Simeon gives to Mary. Behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. This child is appointed means prophesied that this will happen. Prophecy of old found in Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it and shall fall and be broken and shall be snared and taken. The idea and the imagery is referenced, this idea and imagery is referenced all throughout the New Testament as well. For example, the Apostle John says in the opening of his gospel account, John 1.11, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Those of Israel did not receive him. Many rejected him. The Apostle Peter speaks this way in 1 Peter 2.4, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Other prophecies of old speak of the Messiah as a stone, both the cornerstone of the church and a stumbling stone for the builders who reject him. Consider Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here we're introduced to the fact that many would reject the Messiah, but that would not prohibit him from becoming the cornerstone of God's redeemed people, the house of God. The builders is a reference to the ecclesiastical builders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, who directed the people to build on the traditions of the elders, on their own legal righteousness. These refused to receive Jesus as the Messiah and to believe unto him. Acts 4, 11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who is the cornerstone? He is Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Messiah, the mighty Savior, the royal Redeemer, our risen Lord. Hear me clearly today. There is no redemption. There is no new covenant. There is no eternal belonging to God's house if there is no cornerstone, if there is no Christ. It is all these things that Simeon's prophecy declares when he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed. Those who reject and oppose Jesus alone as Savior and Lord will fall, and those who trust their lives to him will truly rise. In this, we have a very particular thing that Jesus' advent, his arrival, means to mankind. A clear dividing line. Whether or not you are with him or against him, Jesus himself speaks to this in places like Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What is Jesus saying in this passage? He says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Well, it doesn't mean the peace that he claims elsewhere to bring to his people. It means he doesn't come to bring a temporary circumstantial peace among all of mankind, like the beauty queens all like to ask for. Atheists and people of other false religions will, are willing to talk about how peaceful or loving Jesus was or how the world should learn from his hippie-like ways. Right? That's kind of like the outsider-in perspective on Christ. But this is not Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus who came to bring a sword. Right? These are, are picking and choosing what they like about Jesus and rejecting the others at their own detriment to continue in false belief and other things. A sword cuts apart. It divides. It's a symbol of war. Jesus is saying here that he came to initiate 
the exclusivity of the gospel. The fact that not all are saved, universalism, but only those whom God sovereignly chooses, that he came to claim for himself a people that would believe in him and worship him forever, who would stand apart from those who deny him. He came to break up our unity, our unity that we had before Christ. And what was that? A united race, the human race, doomed to God's wrath for our sin. But when he came, a war broke out. Why? Why? Because Jesus, because God's redeemed now stand apart from those who are condemned. By God's grace, we cross the line and stand with Christ. In this, see, the arrival of Jesus at Christmas is not a cute scene of baby clothes and balloons. Why? Because God's redeemed. I'm sorry. Why? Because it is more of a scene of war. War on sin and death on behalf of his people. It is to initiate the war between those who will lay down their lives at Jesus' feet and those who will stand for their own glory and way. Jesus came to defeat the enemy on the cross and win the war against sin and death, but also to ensure a war between his followers and those who will stand opposed to him. This is what Jesus said two verses prior to what I just read. Matthew 10, 32-33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. He came to draw a line of clear distinction, saying you're with me or you're against me. There's no in-between. It is my true prayer that you see and savor the grace of God in the gift of his only begotten Son who came to die in your place so that you could be forgiven of your sin trust your life to the Lordship of Jesus, to cross the line, to live, and to one day reign with him forever. This is Simeon's point, the final part of our passage. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary would go through great suffering. In Jesus' life, death, resurrection, many thoughts would be revealed. Many true testimonies would be revealed of where people really stand, with or against him. Everyone will be tested for which side they stand, with Christ or against him. I pray it is God's gracious will to give you saving faith in Jesus alone so that you too cross the line into salvation and eternity with God forever. It is here that even Mary, we see, will be greatly tested. How so? In a test that, if I polled you parents, might be the greatest test of all of your life, would be. A sword will pierce through your own soul. To describe the great suffering that she would uniquely face as her truly innocent baby boy, one day tortured, brutally murdered in the place of sinners. R.C. Sproul once wrote regarding these words to Mary given by Simeon. I wonder how many times she recalled what Simeon said, thinking, what did he mean? Did she think of his words? When her child grew up and before her eyes was hanging on the cross and at his death the soldier took his spear and pierced Jesus' side. Do you think Mary felt that not just in her side but in her soul? She must have finally known that this prophecy had come to pass.
Simeon said to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul. The truth is, church, many parents in this life will go through very hard things when it comes to our kids. Whether it is by someone else's sinful doing to them, or their own sinful doing, or simply, as God makes clear in Scripture, the providence of God to use their life amidst great suffering and hardship for His purposes. I have a unique seat in the world as a pastor to get to walk many of these roads of deep suffering and mourning with many parents. And often what comes to mind for me is the suffering of Mary, who watched her truly perfect and holy son be so brutally beaten and publicly mocked and murdered. I can only imagine the depth of her pain and heartache in this. Truly, it must have reached to her soul and been the greatest test for, for whom she truly loves the most and belongs. I praise God for her steadfastness in it all. Not only was Mary faithful in her giving birth to Jesus among hard, miserable circumstances, and then to faithfully raise him, only to be open-handed with his days, his life, even what we witnessed earlier at the Lord's Supper, what, what he had to do to be faithful to his mission, right? Then to watch him ultimately suffer and die so that you and I could be saved. What a gift. Church, I pray it's the same with each of us who might face deep heartache and hardships in this life, that while it cuts very deep, that we too would remain steadfast in faith in our good God, who reigns over all these things for his glory and our good. May it be so. Pray with me. Father, what a, what a good God you are. For despite the things we face, the struggles of life and of our flesh and our mind. You have done such a marvelous thing to make us yours. For this, we are truly grateful. Oh Lord, help us to be fixed on Christ, resting in Jesus, hoping in Jesus, experiencing the peace of Jesus amidst all these things knowing that you are at work in a marvelous and mighty way for your glory. Use us, Lord, for your glory and the good of many. Thank you for the testimony and the witness of Simeon and its blessing to us this morning. Hear us as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>